As we prepare to hear the word of God read and proclaimed, let us turn to the Lord in prayer that he might bless the reading and hearing of his holy and errant infallible word. Let us pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Scripture reading is from the gospel according to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. And he, meaning Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Those of you who were in Sunday school this morning or have been following along through Mark's gospel know a little something of the context in which Jesus tells this parable of the tenants as it has been known. After coming into Jerusalem, Jesus did not shy away from those who opposed him specifically the religious leadership of Israel, but rather he confronted them head on, beginning at the very center of religious practice in Israel, the temple. Brother Don gave some very good explanation and insights this morning in a Sunday school lesson on the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, the passages immediately preceding this one. But there's a passage between this morning's Sunday school lesson and our sermon this morning that shows that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are ready for Jesus when he arrives at the temple again the next day after its cleansing. They confront him and ask him by what authority 
he is doing these things. What right does Jesus have to act with power in the temple? But Jesus is wise and puts his interrogators into a bit of a pickle by questioning them instead, telling them that if they answer his question, he will answer theirs. And his question was this, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? You see, this is very clever on Jesus' part because the religious leaders didn't want to expose themselves by saying it was from God because they knew that they had not believed John's message. To say that he was from God would have been to say that he was a prophet truly sent by God, but they had not listened to him They had not obeyed his call to repent. But they also did not want to say that John's baptism was from man because the people held that John was a prophet from God. And the religious leaders certainly did not want to upset the people. And so they evaded Jesus's question as expected. And therefore, Jesus refused to answer their question but rather offered them this parable instead. Now, we might miss the reference in this passage, but it is almost certain that the religious leaders would not have missed it. The parable is not simply a story rooted in everyday life of first century Galilee depicting the inevitable tension between these absent landowners and the dispossessed, hungry peasantry who cultivated the land as tenant farmers. And Jesus was presenting a scenario that was all too common in his context, but while this scenario might have been easily relatable to the original hearers of this passage, even more significant than the contextual reality of this parable was how this parable was derived from Isaiah 5. It was an allusion to what is known as the song of the vineyard, which speaks of God planting a vineyard, replete with a hedge, a watchtower, and a pit for a wine vat. Does that sound familiar? The vineyard in Isaiah 5 only produces wild grapes, though, so it's destroyed. So Jesus takes Isaiah 5 and he marries it, as Sinclair Ferguson says, to this present-day situation of absent landowners and tenant farmers who worked the land in the owner's absence under a contract. The result of this is that whereas previous parables were meant to veil Jesus' message to those who, who had not been given eyes to see or ears to hear, As we find in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, this parable was actually meant to be understood to some degree. So perhaps the religious leaders didn't pick up on the fact that the messengers that the owner sent ahead of his son who were killed and beaten were the Old Testament prophets, but there was little doubt that they understood who the owner's son was meant to point to. It was Jesus. Jesus was telling them that he knew what their intentions were to destroy him. But think about what else he's telling them here. He's not only reminding them that the vineyard was not theirs. 
It was not Israel's, it was God's. He was identifying himself as the the son of the owner who had been sent by the owner to receive the fruit rightfully belonging to his father. And in identifying himself in this way, he's claiming not only to be a representative of his father, but also the rightful heir of the vineyard. He's not simply like the slaves who had come before him, simply bearing a message from their owner. He came as something much more. And finally, he was telling them that their plan would have horrible consequences. Disaster was coming for them. The owner would return and kill them and give the vineyard to others, which is a clear reference to the Gentiles. Remember, Jesus had just condemned the temple for its failure to include Gentiles, saying, is it not written, my house will be called a prayer, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Therefore, this was not simply a word of prophecy. It was a word of judgment against these religious leaders. And they recognized it as such. Verse 12 tells us that they sought to arrest him. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So this is the parable in its context. But I want to spend the rest of our time this morning giving two applications for our text for our context. The first deals with the religious authorities' reaction to Jesus and their plotting to destroy him. Jesus delivers this parable of judgment against the authorities because of their opposition to him, but also because they had been unwilling or unable to produce the fruit that was due to God from their work. You see, they were responsible for being good laborers in God's vineyard. They were supposed to be the ones pointing God's people to the Messiah who had been prophesied, reminding God's people of his promises. But instead of this, the Messiah has arrived and they have opposed him and sought to kill him. For they had not been good and faithful tenants, but they were using the vineyard for their own purposes. And as I read this passage, I couldn't help but to think of the prophecy in Ezekiel 34 against the shepherds of Israel. These shepherds were supposed to care for and to protect God's flock, his people, but they had done the opposite. They were slaughtering God's sheep. They were not feeding them. They were allowing wild beasts to come in and attack the sheep. They were not binding up the weak and injured sheep. Now, just to be clear, those who were being called shepherds in the context of Ezekiel 34 were the kings of Israel. But God promises in Ezekiel 34 that these bad shepherds will be replaced with a good one from the Davidic line, and that God himself will seek out and rescue his sheep. It's a clear prophecy to the coming Messiah, to Jesus Christ, who declares himself to be the good shepherd, who is the Davidic king that was long awaited, but who is also fully God. I would like to suggest, though, in the absence of kings for the past several hundred years of Israel's history, the religious leaders had become the sole shepherds of God's people. 
but they had done exactly what the kings had done. They lorded their authority over the people. They had used their position to become powerful and wealthy and had taken advantage of the weak. They had stacked law upon law, making their teaching an oppressive burden to God's people. They had failed to feed God's flock, to protect them, to lead them in correct obedience and worship of God. And now Jesus was here revealing their mismanagement, their misuse of power and authority, and he was standing in judgment over them. The whole religious system was about to be undone. The temple, the center of the Jewish religion, the place of prayer and sacrifice was not only going to be made obsolete, but it would be destroyed altogether. It would be replaced by a community of people who would gather in prayer and worship all over the world. For God's desire has always been for the nations. So now he would no longer primarily dwell in one place, but would dwell in the hearts of all of his people. They would become his temple. And Jesus would provide a better sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice, an all-encompassing sacrifice that would be sufficient to cover the sins of all God's people. But in this new covenant that God was making in Jesus Christ, he would still send shepherds to his people, under-shepherds, who would serve under and in the example of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Sees under shepherds who would provide his people humble leadership and serve as overseers of this new covenant community. The problem is, as the New Testament will make abundantly clear, some who come claiming this title were not God-ordained leaders. They came not to seek and save the lost sheep of God's fold. They came not to care for God's flock, not to feed them, not to bind up the weak, not to warn the proud, not to protect God's flock from wild beasts. Rather, they came with their own self-interest in mind. They came with their own agenda. They came seeking power and authority. They came to lead God's people astray as Jesus will later warn in Mark 13. The writers of the New Testament warn the church of these false leaders. These warnings come from Luke in Acts, from Paul, from Peter, from John. And as it says in Titus, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Beloved, This passage stands as a reminder and a warning to us that there are religious leaders who say they are of God but stand in opposition to Jesus Christ. Therefore, beware of those who are preaching and teaching a gospel other than what you have received in God's word. It absolutely grieves my heart, but there is a prolific number of those who are called Christian ministers or religious experts who declare themselves to be authorities on God in Scripture, who claim that they recognize the Bible as authoritative and yet are teaching licentiousness, a disregard for biblical morality, who are creating a false image of Jesus and what it means to be his disciple 
who are proclaiming that parts of the Bible are to be ignored, especially what the Bible calls sin. There's an attempt to reframe sin, to redefine it as something other than an offense to God. It's all over the internet. It's all over so-called Christian literature. It's in the news. And it's done with very persuasive rhetoric, often appealing to love, often playing to emotion, arguing that we have misunderstood the Bible, have followed misinformed traditions, have projected our own prejudices upon God. Just recently, I read an article written by an ordained minister in another denomination. Doesn't matter which. It was published in the official news outlet of this denomination. It was shared by a Christian woman I know. It was labeled by her as thought-provoking. Here's how the article began. I'm quoting. One must be careful in using the Bible as a source of moral standards. First sentence. Throughout history, the Bible has too often been used to justify one's own moral preferences rather than to seek God's will about human behavior. The Bible has been quoted to support slavery and segregation. The minister then goes on to remind his readers that the Bible affirms, that's his word, not mine, Abraham's sexual relations with Hagar and condemns eating shellfish and wearing claws of two different fabrics. Sound familiar? If you were here a few weeks ago for John's sermon on Mark 7, then you recognize this argument. Anyhow, finally, he gets to his point. The author comments that when he was, before he gets to his point, he, he comments that when he was a boy, playing cards, dancing, and drinking alcohol were prohibited in the name of Christianity. And now, after he suggested with very little subtlety that those who hold to certain moral standards should be lumped in with those who ignorantly use the Bible to support slavery and wrongfully follow the Old Testament prohibition of eating shellfish, we come to his intended target. He states, quoting again, "'Today all those things are permissible even by religious people, showing that moral standards do evolve.'" That brings us to the question sharply dividing the Christian community in our time. How are we to think about and act toward the LGBTQ community? He answers his own question in a very predictable way. But beloved, this is not an issue of the LGBT community. Don't be distracted here. The issue is, as the author presents it, how are we going to read and interpret the Bible? How are we going to read and interpret the Bible? And after he tears it down and presents it as unreliable, he will then try to present you with an understanding of God from the Bible, which he wants you to believe is reliable. The problem is he isn't presenting you with the God of the Bible. He's using trickery. He's trying to get the reader to abandon biblical views of morality by equating the moral law with the old covenant dietary law by shaming the reader into believing that following a biblical sexual ethic is somehow hurtful to your neighbor and a violation of God's command to love your neighbor. He's presenting you with half-truths, or rather, twisting truth and perverting it. And we need to see it for what it is. 
Dearly beloved, this is not simply an attack on Scripture. It's an attack on Jesus himself, who is the Word of God. It's an attack on Jesus, who, as we have seen in Mark 7, declares all foods clean, even while condemning the entire range of sexual immorality as defined in Old Testament moral law. He doesn't present this Jesus, though. Are you following me? At its core, this is... This issue is not an interpretation of moral law. The issue is Jesus. There is difficulty accepting sin as God has defined it because there is difficulty accepting Jesus as he has been revealed. Therefore, the issue is a Christological one. All the issues facing the church today, I would argue, are Christological in nature. They're about Jesus. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It isn't good enough to say he's Lord and Savior and then openly reject his teaching on a specific aspect of discipleship. The preceding passage in Mark, as we've already discussed, shows that the religious leaders realize that Jesus has authority. The problem is they reject the source of his authority. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. Welcoming Jesus is welcoming the one who sent him. But Jesus is operating outside of what they have defined as acceptable parameters. He challenges their authority. He challenges what they have set up as proper obedience and reveals that they have failed to, failed to understand God's law and to teach it and to live it. And Jesus reveals that we don't get to define God's parameters. They are not ours to change based on the current culture about how we feel about them or if we understand them or not. They are simply to be obeyed. And so even today, we have so-called religious leaders doing the same thing who reject Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible because they reject God in his holiness. They're crafty, though. They like to teach half-truths about Jesus. Beloved, do not settle ever for half-truths. Half-truths are whole rejections of who Jesus is. Reject the teaching of anyone who is encouraging the thought that Jesus is anything less than fully God and fully human as less than the embodiment of God's word in whom the heavenly father is perfectly revealed to us, as less than the fulfillment of the law in the prophets, who try to tell you, present you with a Jesus who is tender toward sinners, but not tough on the proud, who not only forgives sin, but confronts sin and calls for redemption a Jesus whose perfect life lived in obedience to the Father is offered for the forgiveness of sins for the repentant person who puts their faith in his all-sufficient sacrifice but stands as a judgment against those who reject him and oppose God and his law. That's the Jesus we're looking for. So, beloved, I want to urge you, I want to plead with you, do not be deceived. 
Do not buy the garbage these peddlers are trying to sell. Flee from those who are calling evil good, even if they bear the title minister. Flee from those who are preaching and teaching things that will not stand boldly upon the truths of Scripture. Flee from those who are evasive in answering questions on the Bible's clear moral teaching, who are quick to offend the holiness of God and his righteousness, but are slow to offend their fellow man. They reveal themselves to be ashamed of the gospel. Flee from preaching and teaching of those who will not affirm the essentials of our faith. They prove themselves to be unworthy to be called ministers of God's holy church. They are wolves in shepherd's clothing. They have come to try to destroy the good shepherd and to steal away his sheep. And claiming to be caring for the weak and casting down the proud, they are only encouraging weak sinners in their sin. They are building up pride and they are discouraging the humble. Arm yourselves against these attacks, brothers and sisters. Judgment will come on them. But let us at the same time and this is my second point. Let us at the same time not be so quick to believe that the threat is only lying outside of ourselves. It'd be easy here to draw a sharp line between them, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, or ours who show themselves to be in opposition of Jesus. It'd be easy to draw that line between them and us as though it's not our sin that nails Jesus to the cross. This parable stands as a judgment against those to whom Jesus was speaking, but it serves as a warning to us. Sinclair Ferguson is exactly right that he states, when he states that God's word searches out men's motives and exposes their hearts, and only two reactions are possible. We can see ourselves as we really are, as sinners, and we can repent of our sin and turn to the Lord to find grace, or we can harden our hearts against the one who exposes our sin. We see these two reactions play out in the story of the rich young man earlier in Mark. After Jesus, realizing that this man is idolizing his possessions, calls him to sell all that he has and to give it to the poor that he may become a follower of Jesus, the man leaves filled with sorrow. But that's not the end of the passage. Did you notice the subsequent teaching and discussion Jesus has with his disciples in their response? After Jesus teaches them of the difficulty of a wealthy person entering into God's kingdom, they ask, well, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? You see, they, maybe surprisingly to us, recognize themselves they recognize in themselves the sin that Jesus has just called out in the rich young man. They realize that they too are implicated in this sin of greed, of idolatry of material possessions. It's a moment of clarity for them. But their reaction is wholly different than the young man. In the same manner, this passage in Mark 12 calls us to examine ourselves God is sending his son to us, asking, will you respect my son? Will you receive him? Will you submit to him in every aspect of your life, or will you reject him? 
Will you deny his authority over you? Will you seek to destroy him because you love the darkness more than the light? Paul reminds us in Romans 11 that for us Gentiles, God has cut off branches that we might be grafted into the vine. He challenges us to consider that if branches original to God's vine were cut off for their hardness of heart, do we believe that God would spare those who have been grafted on? So who do you say that he is? This question is not limited to your views on human sexuality, by the way. Jesus, in fact, has a lot more to say about money than he does about sexuality. In the previous two chapters, Jesus has given instruction on divorce, on treatment of children, on greed in the idolatry of material possessions, on pride, on serving others, on prayer, on forgiveness. So who do you say that he is? If he is the word of God, if he is the Lord, if so, are we? Are we obeying his teaching? I think one very easy way to examine ourselves is to ask ourselves if we are offended by what the Bible teaches. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you can read the Bible in its entirety and you aren't awakened to your sinfulness, if you aren't awakened to your need, your desperate need to cast yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ to find forgiveness, to find strength for obedience, that you might live a fruitful life pleasing to God, then it means one of four things. It means that you aren't reading carefully enough to realize that Jesus is confronting you in your sin. It means that your conscience has been seared, as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, that you have been become so dulled to right and wrong that they are indiscernible to you, that you have warped Jesus from who he has been revealed to be to someone who is agreeable with you in your lifestyle. Or it means, as it did for the rich young ruler, that you realize your sin and you simply refuse to submit yourself to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And this was the difference between the rich young ruler and the disciples. By God's grace, they are willing to abandon their sin to follow Jesus. And notice Jesus' response to his disciples' question of who then can be saved. He states this, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Dearly beloved, as we examine ourselves according to God's word and hopefully as we allow it to hold up a mirror to us that we may truly see ourselves as we are, recognizing the depth of our sinfulness, we mustn't be simply cast into despair. Scripture teaches us that we have all fallen short of God's glory. It also teaches us that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Don't miss the grace in this parable of the tenants. The owner sends his beloved son. He is willing to spare his beloved son. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son 
that whoever believes in him would not perish but receive everlasting life. The stone was rejected, but it's become the cornerstone. God sent his son, his beloved son, to die for you and for me that we might know forgiveness of sins. He has opened access to himself through this self-sacrifice. And we have been invited into his vineyard, not because we are worthy recipients to be called his people, but simply by his grace and for his glory. This is why it is marvelous in our eyes. The point is not to look at what God calls us to and view it as a burden and therefore to deny the word of God's claim on us. It isn't to try to wiggle our way out of saying it somehow doesn't apply to us. It isn't to reject Jesus as being too harsh. Rather, it's to encourage us to fall at his feet, to admit that we are poor and needy sinners in desperate need of his grace. It's to admit that it is our son sin that hung him on that cross and to allow that to come over us like a tidal wave that washes us right to the foot of the cross where we can find forgiveness of sins, where we can look on our sin and its consequences and learn to hate it, to despise it, and to love the one who gave his life for us and to find our life in him. It's to come to him and admit our weakness, that in him we may find our strength. It's there that we would find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's to understand that it is impossible for us to be saved by our own strength, our own righteousness, but with God, all things are possible. Thanks be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise for your truth revealed to us in your word. We give you thanks for the promises that are contained in your word. We give you thanks for the ways that it encourages us it gives life to us. It gives strength to us. But Lord, we also thank you that your word holds up a mirror for us to see ourselves as we are. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would not be a reason for us to reject you, but Lord, to run to the foot of the cross and find forgiveness. Give us courage to confess our sins to repent of them, to turn to you to find true life. For we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe. Using the Apostles' Creed, Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.